0: Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork, Comedy. And I have been telling you now for the last few episodes that we were on our way to the best and the brightest sinner of Hell, and I have been giving you <laughs> false counsel. Well, at least for this episode of the podcast, we've come out of the thieves. There was a series of episodes, <laughs> eleven of them, on the thieves, and they were hard. This is an interpolated episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, in which what I want to say to you is take heart. Let me explain that more fully without any recourse to the comedy itself until the very end. Let me start out by saying that I have fixed the comment feature on my website Markscarbro.com or you can go to walkingwithdante.com they both go exactly the same place the comments have been closed on the episodes for comedy for a long time and that's because I was just too cheap to pay the $25 don't laugh at me to upgrade the service so that I could have comments. So I finally did it. I upgraded the service and voila, comments appeared this week and people are commenting. If you want to get in on a conversation on any of these episodes, including this one, go there, walkingwithdante.com or markscarbrough.com. Drop to where this episode is. You'll find the page for Dante on my website. And drop to where this episode is. You can drop a comment here. You can drop an op- a comment on any episode whatsoever. So there's one way you can take hard. What's another way? Dante always moves the fence. Remember this idea? It comes up early on for us as we're talking through comedy. And I told you that there is this way that Dante always moves the fence of whatever he's talking about to include more and more of what he thinks is the human experience. Nothing could be more true of that than this giant eighth circle of fraud. Fraud is not a deadly sin by any stretch of the imagination. Fraud is a Dantean sin, and it's particularly interesting because it involves what humans do to each other. You'll notice in all of the fraudsters we've encountered, whether it's Jason, whether it's Pope Nicholas III, whether it's those fortune tellers, whether it's the bearers and the people stuck in the pitch, whether it's those hypocritical friars, whether it's the thieves, over and over again, this is not about what people do against God. It's about what people do to each other. It's about becoming less and less of a human. And for Dante, clearly being a human Means respecting fellow humans. Dante respects fellow humans so much that he makes the final two sins, the deepest parts of hell, about what humans do to each other, either through fraud or, where it's ahead of us yet, treachery. Those two concepts are not anything about God. The last time we've seen somebody direct a sin at God, we saw Capaneus the blasphemer stretched out on the hot sands of the violent. It's true that Vani Fucci gives a vulgar hand gesture to God in the pit of the thieves, but this isn't a sin directed at God, theft. I mean, he did take stuff from the church treasury, but God is not harmed by this in a Dantean theology. Humans are harmed. Humans are harmed in their ability to worship God, in the beautiful ornaments that a church has to increase the aesthetic value of worship. This is a distinctly human theft, even if it's of church items because it is the most sacred things that humans have that can connect them to the divine again dante is moving the fence right and left to include what humans do to each other and if you don't think <laughs> do I have to become a preacher here if you don't think that that has something to do with the modern world you're not paying attention that is exactly the problem in the modern world people do not respect each other people do not respect what each other stands for. People want to encroach on the space of each other. My gosh, this is the modern world, more so than ever with social media. Listen, I don't want to be a preacher, so I don't want to get into some big sermon here, but Dante's moving the fence. He's moving the fence on what counts as a horrible, horrible sin. You would think, given Dante's stern Roman Catholic theology, that perhaps blasphemy would be the final pit of hell. You know, oh, saying something horrible at God or twisting theology in some way that harms God. But for Dante, God is harmless. And I don't mean that like God can't do harm. I mean, you can't harm God, that God is without the ability to be harmed. And so God is so remote and so removed that God can't be harmed. The real sin, I use that word so loosely, the real sin involves hurting each other and doing things to each other as humans. Let me read you a passage from Auerbach's fabulous study of Dante, Dante, Poet of the Secular World. This is the translation by Ralph Mannheim, and this is the final paragraph of the fourth chapter on the structure of comedy. And let me read this paragraph to you, because I think it says something about Dante and moving the fence and what comedy is up to. In truth, the comedy is a picture of earthly life. The human world, in all its breadth and depth, is gathered into the structure of the hereafter, and there it stands, complete, unfalsified, yet encompassed in an eternal order. The confusion of earthly affairs is not concealed or attenuated or immaterialized, but Preserved in full evidence and grounded in a plan which embraces it and raises it above all contingency. In other words, it's not that human, now this is me, not Auerbach, it's not that human affairs are somehow ancillary to divine purpose. Rather, they have been raised above of, of all contingency and made central to the work of comedy. Doctrine. I'm going on with Auerbach, and fantasy, history and myth are woven into an almost inextricable skein, like a skein of yarn, skein. Often, an almost unconscionable amount of time and effort is required to fathom the content of a single line. (laughs) or truer words said. But once one has succeeded in surveying the whole, the hundred cantos, with their radiant tertarima, their perpetual binding and loosing, revealed the dreamlike lightness and remoteness of a perfection that seems to hover over us like a dance of unearthly figures. Yet the law of that dream is a human reason, operating according to a plan and conscious of its destiny. I think that that is so important to hear. Now, listen, I think Auerbach overstates the case just a bit. I don't think Dante is quite the humanist that Auerbach wants to make him. But still and nonetheless, it's a great take heart message to be heard right now. This is the sum or the attempted sum of human behavior. Dante returns to the story again and again. Dante is always going to come back to the plot. Listen, we can come back to all the meta-literary stuff we want. We can come back to all the mythic stuff we want, all the Ovid and the Lucan and the Virgil stuff we want over and over again. We can come back to the high classical images. We can come back to Thomas Aquinas and we can come back to high theology. When we get up in Paradiso, we're going to be being more Aquinas than you've ever wanted to be in in your life. But Dante always, always returns to the story, even though when we get in purgatory at the very center of the poem itself, the very central cantos of the center canticle purgatorio, when we get there, even though there is a giant, long discourse on the formation of the soul and how humans are formed, you'll be surprised to know that Dante would end up being pro-choice not pro-life, but that's all ahead of us. How the soul is formed, when it is inserted into the fetus, how the fetus goes about developing in that huge bit right at the center. It's a giant discourse right at the center of Purgatorio. We're also going to find out in in that giant discourse that every sin is really a perversion of love, that love is the fundamental constant of of the universe. It is, <laughs> I don't know, some physics constant that holds the universe together, and every sin is a misunderstanding or a misdirection of love in some way, and yet we're going to come out of that discourse and return to the journey, to the plot. So we may go down rabbit holes. We just went down a huge one with the thieves, but we're going to constantly come back to the story again and again. That's what makes Dante's poem so amazing. The story is never forgotten. No matter how many pits we slide down into, no matter how many diversions we get into with Ovid and Lucan, we're still on a walk across the known universe. How else can we take heart? Dante is struggling to deal with the past in the present. Dante is sitting at a particular moment in history, the early 1300s, in which political strife is eating Europe from the inside out, as we've discussed endlessly. And he is trying to figure out how that which you value in the past Ovid, Lucan, Virgil, and many more things, how does that speak to the present? And in that, I would put the Bible, Augustine, Aquinas, how does all of this stuff from the past, Cicero, Stoicism, how does Pythagoras, how does all of this stuff sitting back there from the past, how does it? Function in the present moment. You know that. You're a reader. You wouldn't be on this podcast if you weren't a reader. And you know that that is actually something that you kind of have to think about. I just spent eight weeks teaching Edith Wharton, an eight week seminar on Edith Wharton. Edith Wharton, I mean, you know, died in 37, what, been dead 90 years, not even quite, right? Not even 90 years at this point. Man, my math is bad. Okay, <laughs> not even that long yet. I constantly have to try to wrestle with the with the notion of how does Wharton's work as a novelist fit into this current moment? And I don't mean that I have to be a preacher and take Wharton and recast her so that you know in a Twitter. TikTok world, Wharton makes sense. No, I don't think that's my job. Instead, I have to constantly be thinking about why do we worry about what Wharton worried about. If Wharton worried so much about a disappearing New York landscape in the past that was part of her childhood but that is no more in the jazz age, if she's struggling with that, why do I have to worry about it? And why do I have to worry about it now? Why? Because because the constant attempt to reconcile the past to the present is what drives her fiction forward and it's what's driving me back to her fiction in an analogous way Dante's struggling with that too he's struggling how do you fit all this in if you are a believer and you're a Christian believer or a Jewish believer or an Islamic believer if you believe in a religious past you struggle with this too I just saw a grand Twitter thread from a woman talking about her mother, and she just told this whole story about her mother, about how her mother went to this Catholic church, was a very, very devout Catholic her whole life, and toward the end of her mother's life, they got a new priest at this church, and this priest, you know, had a meet and greet with all the congregants of the church, do you call them congregants, the Catholic church? You can tell, I don't know. All the members, okay, the parishioners, parishioners, there's the word, parishioners, (laughs) you can tell, I don't know. Um, All the parishioners in the Catholic church and the priest had a meet and greet with them. And the priest, you know, was talking back and forth about various things and dropped the notion that Adam and Eve is probably just a story. This woman's mother was shocked. Not shocked because the priest said it, but shocked because she'd always felt this. She, all her life as a good Catholic, she had thought, oh, that's, you know, I mean, it's a nice story. It's a story. It might explain some things. Maybe it has some theological resonance for now. Maybe it has some allegorical, we would say in Dante, resonance for now. But, you know, I don't believe that there was a real Adam and Eve. And to hear the priest say this, this so jarred her mother, and her mother was so happy to hear the priest say this. And the Twitter writer's ultimate moral of the story here was, can you imagine how long my mother struggled with this idea that I didn't believe everything this church, which I wholeheartedly support, I didn't believe everything they believe. And I'm not holding exactly what they're holding. And this woman was talking about how much dissonance there must have been in her mother's head. And I thought to myself, yes, fair, true enough. There is a lot of dissonance all going around there. But at the same time, it's the same dissonance we all live with. Even if you're not a believer, you struggle with how to fit your family history into the current moment. You struggle with how to fit family trauma into the current moment. Dante is struggling with the same analogous, not exactly the same, analogous things. How does the past fit into the present? Does it just not, like Caucus, that centaur with the thieves, and I can just make it up and torque it all I want and twist it? So, you know, the way it fits into the present is I jam it in there any which way I want and change it any which way I want? Or does it fit more fully into the present? Does it speak to the present? It may seem remote from you because you're not struggling with Ovid or Virgil or Lucan, and you're not struggling with Aquinas. I don't think, probably, maybe you are, struggling with Aquinas or Augustine, but you too, no matter what you're doing, no matter if you believe in the Quran, if you believe in Torah, if you believe in the New Testament, no matter if you just have family struggles, no matter if you're part of a political network in the modern world, we're all trying to make the past fit into the present to outdo it, to recast it, to rethink it, to work with it in some way so that the present doesn't seem an isolated island of time, but instead seems like a contiguous plot with something that has come before. Dante is always gaming. I am not a gamer, but I'm going to tell you that Dante is always gaming. There is always a secret encryption key somewhere. It's in the encryption code. There's a secret key. And when you unlock that, more things about the episode unlock around it. We're about to have this big time in the 26th canto of Inferno. Like all great writers, Dante is writing for us, for you and me, for his readership, and he's writing for himself. And that's the crux. He's writing for both. Listen, I've taught enough writing in my life. I can tell you there is a huge, writerly mistake made when you only write for yourself. If you only write for yourself, it's impossible to read what you've written because it's all about secret key encryption. If you only write to me... As your reader, then you're mostly going to write pablum. You're not going to write anything with much depth to it because you're anticipating what I need out of you and you're anticipating my reaction to you and you're not taking into account a fuller, larger landscape of how to create a narrative. A great writer learns how to write both for herself or himself or themselves and for her, his, or their readership. The way that happens is great writers drop secret key encryption into their text, just like gamers look for that secret key that unlocks various levels or various weapons or whatever else it is that you're doing while you're gaming. That's what Dante's doing. He's dropping them. Wait till the next episode of this podcast. He's going to drop a big secret key into the tercets, the encryption of comedy. So before I part from you with this Take Heart episode and buck up and let's keep walking together, let's just do the comedy. (laughs) Ready? Let's just do it so far. I think that it would be really important to tell you where you've come from. So here's where you've come from. A man comes to himself in a dark wood. He has no idea why he's there or what he's doing there. He tries to climb a hill to get out. He can't. He's stopped by a bunch of beasts, three of them, in fact. They drive him back down the hill. At the bottom of that hill, he's about to lose all hope, and a figure appears out of nowhere. Virgil, the poet, Virgil, the classical Roman poet, Virgil. Who's going to save him? Miserere, he says to him, save me, save me. And Virgil does. Virgil says, okay, I'm going to save you. And then this guy who woke up, he suddenly gets a bit antsy. Uh, He gets a little self-doubting. He says, well, hey, listen, who am I to do this whole thing? So then Virgil has to tell him a story, a story about Aeneas and the founding of Rome? Nope. A story about Beatrice in heaven and Beatrice and St. Lucy and maybe the Virgin Mary and how all of heaven is hoping for his salvation, well, this guy says, <laughs> I guess I have to go on the journey, which is not up that hill, but is across the known universe. He starts walking. He comes through a gate with some wild writing on it. He sees some people who are not really in hell, but not really in heaven. Although they have come through the gate. We're even told that they were never really alive or dead in the real world. They're running around chasing a flag, being chased by bees and wasps and stinging things and all kinds of muck. But fortunately, that doesn't last too long, because then we come into the gorgeous first circle of hell, this beautiful green landscape of grass and clear water called Limbo, with all of these sighing babies, which are given only one line, and all of these philosophers and poets, once Dante knew and once Dante wished he'd known. He's actually made a sixth with Homer, Horace, Ovid, Lucan, Virgil, and our poet, They walk across, come to a castle. It's all beautiful, and then they have to keep walking, and they walk into this wind tunnel where souls are being blown about on the wind. There's a lot of really famous old classical school souls, and they're all being judged here for lust. One of them comes down off the wind with her lover. Francesca gives one of the most amazing speeches in all of Inferno, and our poor pilgrim faints. He wakes up amongst the gluttons. There's that nasty three-headed Cerberus. Some guy sits up in the muck. Chaco, he tells prophecies about Florence. He falls back down in the muck. Virgil starts to talk about the apocalypse and the last day and what will happen in the last day. They walk on. They see the avaricious and the prodigal rolling boulders around each other, smashing their boulders into each other, going back around the pit. We now understand that the circles of hell are indeed circles. These aren't just landscapes. It seemed like they were landscapes in Limbo. Nope. They are, in fact, circles. And the avaricious and the gluttonous go way around their circles. Wait didn't find out how big these circles are. Way around their circles, smash their boulders, and come back. This leads Virgil out to a concept of fortune. And Virgil talks all about the goddess fortune ruling this world who sets men's fates up and down on the wheel of fortune. Seems a little pagan, but it is out of Virgil's mouth, and it is in comedy. They walk on until they come to the river Styx, and here they see the angry. They have to wait to get across it. Phlegias comes with his boat. They get into the boat. The pilgrim is clearly in his body because the boat sinks a little bit into the river Styx. The angry and the wrathful and the sullen are all around them, the river's Boiling with the bubbles of hatred out of the sullen's mouth, who are sunk in it. And for the first time in all of comedy, we meet somebody who our pilgrim actually knows Filippo Argenti. You may have known that glutton guy, but it's not totally clear who that is. Now, for the first time, we actually see somebody the pilgrim actually knows from the real world. He says he recognizes some of those clergy in the avaricious and prodigal, but he doesn't call them out. Here, somebody that the poet would have known in his real life is called out. That seems like a big change. They get out of the boat. They walk to the walls of Dis. The walls of Dis are closed against them. There are Demons, there are furies, they're threatening to call Medusa. They don't know what to do. Virgil seems completely stymied. Virgil knows he's supposed to take this journey. He doesn't exactly know how this is going to get fixed. It does get fixed because somebody, an angel, Mercury, Jesus, somebody comes, waves a wand, breaks open the walls of Dis. They walk inside. There are the burning tombs of the heretics. Farinata rises up. Proud, out of one. He and Dante have an amazing conversation in which Dante comes to realize the complicity of political warfare and the difficulties of it in the middle of that conversation a fellow poet's father rises up out of the same tomb and asks where his son was. He misunderstands the pilgrim. He thinks the pilgrim has used past tense and kind of did, kind of didn't. Depends on how the Florentine works. But he falls back down horrified thinking his son is damned. The pilgrim Dante and Farinata go on. The pilgrim seems to have softened to Farinata. They seem to be getting on even ground although they were political enemies they walk on they see a tomb of a pope they have to stop virgil and dante do because of the stink of lower hill virgil maps it all out then they start walking again they come down a scree-filled slope past the Minotaur. They see centaurs everywhere. They're now in the seventh circle of hell, the big circle of the violent. We come across the violent against others and the property of others who are sunk in various depths in a river of boiling blood. We come into a wood with them, a weird wood with harpies up in the trees. There they find out that these are the suicides who have fallen here and turned into these horrible trees. And there are also people being chased by rabid dogs, or seemingly rabid dogs, who have done incredible violence to their own property. And then finally, the third circle inside the bigger circle of violence. We come to those violent against God. We meet the blasphemers with Caponeus stretched out on burning sands where it seems to be snowing flakes of fire. We also find the homosexuals, two cantos worth of the homosexuals, who have to keep running or else they're going to get stretched out like Caponeus and burn up for a long time with the falling snow fire. And then we finally come out to the usurers. They're on the edge of a cliff. The monster of Fraudgarian flies up to the cliff. Dante has to be coerced to get on its back. It's a hideous thing with a human face and a grotesque body. It flies them down in a flight of the imagination, and they start down into the eighth circle, and the Pits of fraud. We see the panderers and seducers walking around in opposite directions. We see the flatterers sunk up in human filth. We see the simoniacs, the people who took bribes for church offices. We see them upside down in holes like Pope Nicholas III. We see the fortune tellers. We see the barraters, people who sold political office for some gain. They're in a ditch. We see the hypocrites walking around in their gilded lead cloaks. We come finally to the seventh pit of the thieves who are undergoing incessant metamorphoses. And we're at the current moment in comedy. So for the next episode of this con- podcast, we are walking on. And we're going to take in what comes up next. Think about that plot I just told you. Think about all that's... <laughs> Think about all that I left out. Think about all that's happened between the opening lines and now the 156th episode of Walking with Dante. Thanks for being on this walk with me. Thanks for connecting with me. You can now connect with me on my website, markscarbrough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can get there and drop comments about this and other episodes, questions. You could even engage in conversations with others who drop comments about these episodes. Oh, it's a dream come true that I actually upgraded my website to make that happen. and and otherwise subscribe and rate this podcast and come back because now I assure you we're moving on into the eighth pit of the fraudulent and one corker of an episode. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then.